Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Max Verstappen dominates and eventually wins the Australian Grand Prix after three red flags and a safety car finish. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name's Michael Laminato and this is round three, the Australian Grand Prix. Max Verstappen won in Melbourne from pole position, but his second victory of the year was both easier and not quite as easy as it looked. On the one hand, Verstappen's Red Bull racing car was as dominant as ever, despite a messy qualifying that made the gap to Mercedes look smaller than it really was. But on the other hand, Verstappen had to deal with three standing starts and a chaotic and crash-strewn final few laps that could so easily have deprived him of victory, especially after George Russell and Lewis Hamilton jumped him at the start. But after a race that blew out by more than an hour, Verstappen won as he always looked like he probably would, extending his title advantage. But the battle for the final positions lasted well into the night, with Stewart's investigations not wrapping up until after 11pm. So to debrief a chaotic and sometimes confusing Australian Grand Prix, I'm joined by Phil Horton from AutoWeek. Phil, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Michael. How are you? I'm very well, yes. Uh, recovering from the Australian Grand Prix. It was as, a, as we all are. Yes, it was quite a late night after the race for those of us covering it. Well, it was it was nearly Monday by the time we left, wasn't it? Yes. I think, well, it, I think it may in fact have been Monday by the time we left. <laughs> I can't remember, actually, to be on, totally honest with you. Uh, the stewards' decisions for various matters, as we'll get through over the course of the episode, came in quite late after 11pm, roughly five hours after the end of the race, which was already delayed by one hour for the various red flags. We will get to some of those decisions later on, because some of them are interesting and contentious despite all of them essentially being thrown well, out. We won't take five hours to, re- to no, reach no, those no. decisions. We'll though. condense it into about 30 minutes, or maybe even less. We'll see how we go. But let's talk about this race a little bit more broadly, because Australia is generally regarded as a bit of an outlier of a circuit. It's become maybe a little bit more normalised since last year's changes. It's become a bit more flowing, a little bit faster. It's also been resurfaced to be much smoother. But it was really interesting, having arrived there on you know the, the Friday and it being a little bit chilly, the number of offs we saw over the course of the weekend I thought was pretty unusual for what's a relatively well-known and fairly, I don't want to say unimaginative track, but it's not its not so challenging that you would expect to be so many mistakes. No, it was surprising. If anything, it was kind of what you might have expected last year when the drivers yeah. came back to Melbourne after you know not, not having driven it for three years, mm-hmm. reprofile some of the corners. But yeah, FP1, there always seemed to be something going on. I think that was the session where there was the GPS loss as well, so it was yeah, a bit disrupted. Yes. There was another stoppage when Logan Sargent had an, had, uh, an electrical problem. But there was just a lot going on. It it, it was cool conditions on Friday, mm. um, so that didn't help. But it was kind of atypically messy, especially, you know, you're right, we've just had Jeddah, and that was a very clean weekend, yeah. very few mistakes, especially when a yeah, high-speed track. Then you come to Melbourne, which, yeah, is probably a more simple circuit. It's still, you know, it's mm. not easy, mm-hmm. but it's not quite as difficult as Jeddah, I think I would argue, um, as, you know, a non-professional. <laughs> yeah, it's a non-professional, though. Yeah, well, I'll take um, your word for it. But yeah, it was a surprising number of offs and mistakes, you know, nothing dramatic for anyone, mm. but just a lot of, you know, 
kind of clumsy moments almost. Mm. It's almost as if the relief of getting away from Jeddah where the walls are right in <laughs> on you all the time, constantly, uh, just to have even a small amount of runoff just meant that they really threw caution to the wind. Maybe that's part of it. It was really quite chilly though. And this, I think this could have defined the race. Ultimately, the race we got was coloured by red flags, but it was so cool. And then in fact, wet on Friday, even on Saturday in FP3, Yet Sunday was really quite warm, probably more representative of what we might have thought about Melbourne. But I thought it was interesting, maybe in the context of, you know, F1 moving towards more night races. We've got a night race in Las Vegas later in the year, which is quite late in the year when it could be quite cool at night. That the response wasn't so easy with the tyres, with the drivers and with the teams with the tyres being quite cold on a smooth, temporary street circuit surface. No, it's that famous thing which several drivers refer to as, you know, the kind of the dark arts of Pirelli mm. in terms of you, you get them right, you fall in the window, you can unlock several tenths that otherwise just aren't yeah. there. You get it wrong, you fall out, you fall out of the window and you're hopeless. You see drivers can be just, you know, sometimes, especially in, in wet races, just seconds off the pace and they can't get it right. And I think we saw that with, you know, kind of conversely, Alfa Romeo, both of their drivers... You know, they went out in Q1, they were struggling and they just seemed bemused at, mm. at why they they just couldn't get any pace out of that car. Whereas conversely, you saw uh, Williams, particularly in the hands of, of Alex Albon, yes, it's a slippery car that works well at a high-speed track. You know, Albon was relentlessly rapid through Sector 2. But he said afterwards, you know, we, we were expecting to be fast, but we seemed to get the tyres right, whereas others didn't. And mm. then they end up in eighth place and that they weren't expecting that before the weekend. So... It's definitely one of those that, yeah, if you get right, there's a lot of time to unlock. And sometimes I don't think teams quite know yeah. exactly why they're fast and therefore they can't then replicate that, you know, not, oh, yeah, great. We found a, a, something that works mm -hmm. in Melbourne. Let's try that in Baku and it just won't work. It will be completely yeah. different. Exactly. And it's also the fact that, and this is something that I, I was a little bit disappointed about with the Melbourne resurfacing is that it was given a really smooth treatment it's now a very low degradation surface. yeah this will come into uh come into effect when we talk about the race a little bit later on but very smooth doesn't take a lot out of the tires and as a result i mean warm-up is harder also makes it a little bit more straightforward usually with the tires not so much this weekend when we get to practice three though this is when things kind of got interesting from what we expected this weekend which was a red bull battle verstappen looked on fine form sergio perez not so much in fact he was a little bit all over the shop all weekend suggested there were car problems but i don't think we really ever got an answer as to what exactly was going on it's very very strange because friday he was there or thereabouts i think mm. his lap got couldn't string compromised by yeah, traffic yeah. so you're thinking well you know he was fine he wasn't like going off the road but then you get to fp3 mm. and i think it was four times i mean yeah. he went off and it wasn't always at the same corner obviously you know it was at the, the breaking points mm -hmm. so specific corners but you're thinking what is going on because it max wasn't struggling he mm -hmm. wasn't let's say perfectly happy with the car but checo you know this is a guy that won the last race has gone well at street based tracks before so it's not like there's a, a weakness and then you know yeah first lap in qualifying gets to turn three just sails straight on and he mm -hmm. was saying about how you know it's that the brake bias has been pushed so far forward but there didn't ever seem to be a full explanation or the team saying, yep, there's a problem. Mm. You know, it, it's, it was a very odd situation because I, I can't remember the last time in dry conditions a, a front-running driver had such an awful day. Mm. It was really interesting. And the way I think Christian Horner was sort of talking by the end of the weekend, I don't want to say like he was suggesting that Perez was maybe hamming it up a bit maybe that's one way to say it but maybe there wasn't as significant a problem as Perez was making out but I, it's just another interesting chapter I guess in that team driver relationship 
the fact that you know didn't get the most out of the car on a weekend Verstappen did didn't seem comfortable in the car which I think sort of comes more to the point well this is another problem for Perez in that you know we know by now because of the way the points are because of the speed of the cars this is going to be you know a one team battle this year mm-hmm. this is we know the world champion will either be Max Verstappen or Sergio Perez and I think we know already which one of those two will be but if Perez is to win this title or even to have a realistic chance mm-hmm. he needs everything to go right let's be honest he mm-hmm. needs a kind of Nico Rosberg 2016 that's the comparison that's been made he needs to be have some fortune which he got dealt in Jeddah when Max had the problem in qualifying mm-hmm. but then he also needs to be relentlessly there in that if Max is winning the race he needs to be second to minimize the damage and then hope Max has an engine failure whatever at another mm. race and loses effectively 25 points so when he has a weekend like that it's like it's a it's a big loss in the context of you know a, a, a battle in which there is effectively only one team at the moment mm. M- maybe it will change later in the year but by that point you know the, the pace of that rb19 you know they're, they're going to be long gone if another team can catch up yeah and i think as well considering the fact as you say it's probably a two driver battle at least at this stage almost certainly will be to the end Every race you're off form means the other guy's going to win. That's sort of fundamentally yeah. the equation here. So yeah. you're essentially handing your main rival a victory. And I think it's interesting in that context, in the broader context of this race, that even when we got to the Grand Prix, Perez, okay, recovered pretty well, recovered 15 positions ultimately, um, which is in line with how many Verstappen recovered last time out. Uh, but there were periods in the race where it wasn't making like the kind of rapid progress you might have expected. And I think that does speak. It clearly was not super comfortable in the car over the course of the weekend, but... It is. I think we can define this not just as one maybe where reliability problems coloured the weekend, but one where he just wasn't getting the most out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think to recover to fifth is is a good result, mm-hmm. you know, from the pit lane, um, and especially considering, you know, let's be honest, that sometimes when drivers have failures, um, they they can catch up. Whereas Perez effectively had a wasted Saturday. He, didn't, mm-hmm. he only did one lap in qualifying and such a bad practice that yes. the race was effectively almost the first time he'd driven the car properly since Friday. So mm-hmm. we'll be out of uh, the rhythm a bit. Um, I think also Red Bull, it looked like their strategy was more focused towards the end of the race rather than the mm-hmm. start. So the progress initially was slow because you're looking and you think he's still kind of quite far down and eventually got into the top 10 and you're like, oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. So once he got in that, you know, focusing on the long game, it did get better, but yeah, it's just it's one of those weekends that you really can't afford to have yeah. in a in a title battle. That you could say it's only let's be honest, let's say he got eleven points because it was fifth and the fastest lap, mm-hmm. so he could have got nineteen mm-hmm. if he had a perfect recovery. But you know he's dropped eight points. That's it doesn't seem like a huge amount, but in the context of a potential season long fight with your teammate, that mm-hmm. that's a lot to give up. Yeah, and worth, like, from the pure strategy or race running point of view, if we were to compare it with Verstappen's race in Saudi Arabia, Verstappen was a bit fortunate with the timing of that safety car, closing it up at the right moment for him to essentially rise to second. Perez had several red flags, and he had gained, I think, five places off the top of my head at the first one, but, you know, wasn't the opportune way for him to maximise that position. So, in a direct comparison, probably not as... It's fairly favourable, I think, with the way Verstappen compared, but still not 100% convincing as a weekend. Verstappen, though, wasn't completely faultless in Q3, almost lost pole position. Which, I mean, with an asterisk, would have made things interesting. Yeah. Things are going to be so interesting, I think, this season, but nonetheless. And I think that, you know, we talk a lot about the Red Bull car, 
even historically, being Adrian Newey's cars, being a little bit on the edge in all respects, right? They need to just be used in a certain way. Sometimes they're unreliable. Conditions also played a role here. But I just thought it was interesting that I can't really think of the last time Verstappen made a mistake under pressure in that way. Maybe 2021, thinking back to Saudi Arabia, that pole lap. But that's a street circuit. Like, I don't know. I, I thought that was interesting in its own way. Weirdly, I think... You know, Max Verstappen will, you know, whatever happens, he is one of the best drivers mm. F1's ever had. He will go down as one of the best drivers F1's ever had. If there is any weakness, I've always thought sometimes it's that it's Q3. It's mm. maybe when you compare to a Lewis Hamilton to even Charles, someone like Charles Leclerc, you know, he's excellent at Q3. Okay, Melbourne's a bad example. He wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time he is. Yes. But... I think that's maybe one, I wouldn't say, it's so hard to say a weakness of Max Verstappen, you know, but where he's not 10 out of 10, maybe he's only a 9 out of 10, that you sometimes Mm -hmm. see that door pushed open. Um, But overall, it it was, I would say, it's an absolutely dominant display when you look at, you know, pole position, Mm -hmm. won the race, and effectively comfortably won the race in the end. But twice made a kind of so-so start, yeah. You're right about a Q3. Made a mistake in the race that you know. It, yeah. Fortunately, that it happened at a corner where there was a lot of grass runoff, and the grass wasn't so wet that he mm. would just sail on haplessly into the barrier, like I think we saw in Formula Two race. Yeah. Um, someone, someone did a very similar mistake. Um, but you know, when everything hasn't quite mm-hmm. gone together, when there there have been little gaps, and yet you still end up taking away 25 points and pole mm-hmm. position, I think that kind of underlines the level that team yes. or the, the the level the car is at let's say yeah um, I think and, that, and the team and driver don't want to do yeah. a disservice <laughs> to them um but yeah what what they can get away with getting wrong mm-hmm. and still get the result yes i think that's actually a really great underlining point is that even verstappen was maybe not perfect this weekend the car he sort of suggested it was a well it's something wrong with the car when he made that mistake but the fact that you could even forget that that mistake happened uh, yeah. because he and, was and so a, comprehensive. It's again, it's if we're looking at any weakness of Verstappen mm. and Red Bull, really, this is one race where historically they've not been great. Maybe yes. it's the time of season, maybe just mm. other cars have been better, but you know they hadn't won the Australian Grand Prix since 2011, and mm. that was the only other time they'd won it. When you look at Red Bull, you know they've won multiple titles, they've won yes. some races year after year after year, especially when Sebastian Vettel was winning, or, or even say you know. A Monaco where they've always gone gone well at, um, or where Max has been very strong the last few years, like the Red Bull Ring or, mm-hmm. or Zandvoort, um, just two that come to mind. Melbourne's not been one of their strong tracks, so to to kind of to win there and to do it, you say fairly comfortably, but you know, mm. you saw when he overtook Lewis Hamilton yes. in the race and bolted like two seconds clear in one sector, kind of just laughably yeah. fast, a bit yeah. like Spa last year. Yeah, um, that. That suggests now we've you know, we've had three tracks, three fairly different tracks. Mm-hmm. They've won them all. I say could have gone one, two, and all of them. Obviously, yeah, mm-hmm. could have, would have, should have, didn't. But they've had the pace at all three of them. So I think to win in Melbourne, maybe more than Bahrain and Saudi, was would be kind of quite a, a satisfying experience for them. Yeah, and I think that's worth underlining here as a final point on qualifying too is that while Verstappen took pole by what seemed like not so much, a small enough margin that both Mercedes drivers seemed pretty buoyed by it as if they'd really closed the gap. This was, don't forget, after he'd made that Q3 mistake, did not get a warm-up lap that was required to get the most out of the tyres for his second run. So despite not having that ultimate warm-up performance in the tyres, still took pole fairly comfortably. It was more than two tenths. So in the realm of like, 
you know, knowing he can do the business, still took it despite yeah. having pretty improper preparation. And that's the mark of a car that I think clearly had, and virtually, uh, other than, and we'll talk about in a moment when he passed Hamilton, had pace that was masked for virtually the entire weekend by circumstances. I think it also goes to underline how this stuff looks routine, but it's not. You still have to be perfect mm-hmm. every single session to get the, the best out of the car. Yeah, and that's the thing. And that's why we might be in for a difficult year competitively. Look, things can still change, but it is worth remembering that what's happening on track is often perfect execution or just very impressive, yeah. full stop, by Red Bull Racing and Max Verstappen. Oh, you know? 20 more to go. Yeah. Only 20 more to go. Let's look at the race now. Plus sprint. Oh, I'll <laughs> forget about those just a moment because even they may be changing in the future. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mercedes actually gave us what looked like was going to be a race at the start of this Grand Prix. Yeah. Got both cars ahead pretty quickly, which in itself was also surprising. You know, it's very rare that you see that. I know Mercedes talked after qualifying that their only prospects of winning this might be to actually jump Mustafa at the start. And it's rare that a team says that and then they actually manage yeah. to do it, I feel like. And that was that was an exciting moment. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Mercedes wrote off their season, apologized to their fans in a very <laughs> lengthy letter and said how sorry they were and mm. how they would go back to the drawing board. I mean, it was all of like, you know, four weeks ago. Yes. So to see the Mercedes running 1-2 mm-hmm. at the start of the race, you know, I say it, isn't, it wasn't expected. They were second and third. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that yeah. would happen. But, you know, obviously George gets Max into turn one. But then Max is a little bit offline, very nearly gets uh, overtaken by Fernando at that point, kind of through turn two. Yeah. Then Lewis kind of gets a second wind and, and really goes for it in turn three. And Max leaves the door open. He said afterwards, well, I didn't need to take a risk because I knew I still had the pace to win, which mm-hmm. is one of the things you can do with a fast car. Um, so there, then at that point of the race, you're thinking, hang on a minute, there's you know an actual potential decent race for the win. Mm-hmm. And that's what, is, I mean, it's very exciting given the season we've been setting up so far. A couple of things happened, though, that meant we didn't get that. One was, well, first of all, there was an early uh, stoppage because of Charles Leclerc, who, who crashed out on his own accord to turn three, took Ferrari out of the race, and well, took one Ferrari out of the race. But it wasn't that stoppage that did it. It was the second safety car, uh, which was caused by Alex Albon spinning off into the barriers, scattering some debris and stones onto the track. Clearly a safety car situation. George Russell was pitted. The first strategic move of the race. George Russell and Carlos Sainz, we should say. We shouldn't forget Carlos Sainz in all of this, despite him not scoring points, which we'll explain later on. Dropped down the order, but this was Mercedes gambling on the fact that the hard tie was going to be enough to go to the distance. Get that stop in when you can. This was still pretty early in the race. And then grind out, force a chase for the win. Undone, though, because there was a red flag called shortly after that. And this has proved relatively contentious on two fronts. One, whether or not the red flag was required, and two, how red flag rules uh, apply in the first place. Let's start with the cause of the red flag. Was it a red flag for you? I was surprised at the time that, you know, when you see a crash like that, your initial thought is obviously your driver's okay. You see the driver's okay. The angles they were showing didn't look like the barriers were that damaged mm-hmm. or, or damaged at all you know you see some accidents and you think well that's a red flag that barrier is cooked mm. you know obviously a lot of gravel on the track but 
it's not the first time you've had gravel dragged onto a track. You get the marshals out there with brooms. You know, maybe it does take four or five laps. So I think when it went to red flag, you did think, oh, maybe there is something more serious. Mm-hmm. Maybe that you know, there's a justifiable reason for this. So you kind of hold off. But then when the restart was was so quick, I think it was maybe. I think it was fifteen minutes. It was fifteen total. minutes in total. So yeah, from so start to be to, to the launch. And which you think, if that was safety car, you're, the safety car laps are usually about two and a half to three minutes. So if you're looking mm-hmm. at safety car, you're probably talking five or six laps behind the safety car, which yeah isn't ideal, but mm-hmm. not not it's that not much of an anomaly. So it's one of those that you think, yeah, I think a red flag mm-hmm. was excessive. And then of course because. <laughs> You know, because Mercedes, you know, they did the right thing. You know, yes. the safety car comes out. I don't think anyone was thinking, oh, this could be a red flag. Mm-hmm. When you look at that scene, you, you, it, it was a surprise when the red flag did come out. So they they did the right thing, thinking, well, if the hard tire can get to the end, George is now down to seventh, but with a hard tire that can that can go mm-hmm. to the end of the race. And would have forced. So the idea behind this is that it would have forced Max Verstappen into a chase because Hamilton was still in the lead. Clearly, we knew that wasn't going to last more than however many laps it took for the DRS to switch back on. So let's say three laps after the safety car, whatever, however many laps that would have been. And then eventually Verstappen would have had to stop, presumably would have been behind Russell. Maybe maybe the pace would have been so great that even that wouldn't have happened, but presumably would have. And then set up some number of laps to chase, depending on whatever pit stop window he would have opened. 30 laps, 20 laps, whatever, on the same tyre to make up ground, maybe with some traffic, who's to say? That was the battle for victory that we didn't get. George Russell sounded surprisingly confident after the race that that was a victory uh, tilt. I mean, it was a tilted victory, but that the victory challenge was on. Is that over it, do you think? I mean, yeah, because the engine was still a failed. Let's, well, let's put, let's also, put like, putting that to one side, <laughs> the fact that his engine did fail, of course. He was never going to be um, on for victory, it turned out. It's a tough one, isn't it? I think what's kind of frustrating about it is that we know these F1 rules with changing the tyres. Mm-hmm. Lots of people don't like them. It is, it's arbitrary. You get a free stop. I don't like it. You know, If your car is damaged, I can understand mm-hmm. having to maybe change a wing, but then you've got to go to the back of the queue. Or if you want to okay. change tyres, um, I think you should go to the back of the queue. Mm. I know that would open the door, kind of the thing of, well, if everyone changes tyres, you'd have a weird, yeah. weird order of people getting shuffled back. Anyway, different point. What's frustrating was mm. that, yeah, first... The red flag, and then Mercedes pitting George, justifiably so. But the start, the first stint, was kind of setting up into an, an intriguing race of could the Mercedes drivers work mm-hmm. together and kind of DRS each other to kind of keep Max behind? Mm-hmm. Because if, if Lewis had DRS of George, or they just kept overtaking each other, there was a chance they, they might have been able to keep mm-hmm. Max behind, because there was one stage where Lewis kind of had half a look at George down into turn 11, yeah. I think, and then you got a radio message with George saying... Oh, are we racing each other? I can't remember mm. his exact phrase, but he seems a bit a yes. bit miffed that mm. Lewis was very close to him and maybe trying to move. So, but could Georgia won the race? You know, if his engine lasted, let's you know, yeah, well, let's, if it yeah. if it didn't barbecue itself, yeah, um, I I don't think so. I mean, let's be honest with modern F one. What you do is you you get to a 10-second lead and you just manage. They have no need to push that car once Max was up front. If he was to have needed to push, I think he could have easily... What's a pit stop there? 25 seconds? So if they'd had a a race pan out, you know, as expected, um, what would George have been? He would have been 10 seconds behind after the first few laps because of the way the field spread. So you're talking about Max needing to find 15 seconds, reel that in. 
I think he would have pretty easily have done that. Let's let's be honest. I think that's the thing because it was tempting to believe that Mercedes could, as you say, could work together because of the first seven or so laps. When even after DRS was enabled, they were surviving in the front. But that becomes a moot point once Russell pits because once Russell was no longer there to sort of double team the DRS. Yeah, we you, saw how easily Hamilton yeah. got past after that restart after the red flag. It was with DRS, yeah. and as you said earlier on immediately after passing him into turns nine and ten put two seconds on him in a single sector yeah that is an embarrassing level of performance it's and just I think, extraordinary isn't it and this is that's i feel like that may be the only glimpse we actually got of how fast the car was this weekend yeah, because it, was, it had been imperfect through qualifying through practice i mean a lot of practice was disrupted yeah. anyway we had that one lap where we actually saw there's no race going on. It here. was also a, a poor sector for Lewis. I think it was a mixture mm. of both. I don't think it was like, oh, that car's two seconds faster in one sector. I no. Think when you compared it, I think to, I think it was Fernando was third at that point, and who was I think Gasly was fourth at that point. Mm. I don't think Science had quite caught up. Um, I think you know they were like maybe one second slower than Max in that sector. Mm-hmm. Because maybe Lewis was a bit put off by yeah, sure. How much far? How fast? <laughs> how easily he was passed? Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that like when Mercedes turned it up in Bahrain that year, mm. or when when you see the pace of a car like mm. on the limit, you think, I really wonder how fast that car could go if they absolutely had to to push it. Yes, and because you know you think if you don't need to push it, you know you're saving the engine you're saving the components you're mm. reducing the risk of failure you know you helps in a cost cap world if you maybe don't need as many components because they're not being mm-hmm. exhausted as much but yeah it would be kind of quite intriguing to see if everything aligned you know and if you just say right max you've got you know, mm-hmm. go for it on this lap absolutely yeah, yeah go so hell like for leather just just to see yeah would be remarkable wouldn't it yeah. Very interesting. I guess the only thing you could say maybe in Russell's favour was that because Perez, admittedly we're admitting that Perez was not getting the most out of the car this weekend, but because he didn't make quite the progress we expected, maybe Verstappen would have find, found it that little bit harder to, to do the chase. But it's all hypothetical, really, and that's the thing. We never got that race. Never even came close to it because we had a long stint of management after that. Everyone switched to the hard ties under that first red flag. By the way, I'm sort of a proponent of the idea that if you switch ties under a red flag, it just doesn't count towards the mandatory change you yes. need. I would because then at least agree. You, yeah, because we should we shouldn't joke ourselves that that rule isn't just about spicing up the show. So what's wrong with in, inserting a clause in the rule that says red flags don't count? But you can change ties if you need, perfectly fine. But it doesn't count as your second compound under the Pirelli rule. And I think that would at least have saved us. I mean, okay, again, Russell's engine did expire, but <laughs> in the other in the alternative hypothetical where it didn't expire. We still may have got something in the race. Would have maybe even been more interesting. Who knows? We got through a long stint of management. Everyone's everyone's favorite thing: tire management. It was really gutting when I managed those hard tires. Yeah, I know, and it was very straightforward for most people. But then we got this very chaotic end of the race. This is the thing that's probably will ensure this race lives in the memory for some right and some wrong reasons. But think about the right ones, I guess. This was for Kevin Magnussen. Tire popped off after he uh, hit the the barrier on the outside of turn two. Cracked the rim, rubber came off, some shards of stuff all over the track. That is why they said they caused called the red flag. But we are in that zone of the race where, and there's nothing regulated around this to be clear. There's been talk about it being regulated, but nothing yet. Merely just a, a movement from among the teams in the sport to consider in these last laps, if there's a safety car, maybe it would be better to stop the race to give us a racing finish. Yeah. Is that the sense you got from this red flag, or is that too cynical? Well, I mean... Yeah, there are two sides 
to things here. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the sports side, there is the entertainment side. We know we are in an entertainment business. We know it's also a pure sport. It's that mm-hmm. balance. For the last couple of decades, it's been that way. We know it's always going to be a thing to, to try and balance out. Um, I thought that I was surprised it was a red flag. Again, like the first one at the mm-hmm. time. More understood a little bit later when it was explained just how much debris and big mm-hmm. chunks of magnesium and metal, whatever, were just littering mm-hmm. the track. And some bits are probably a bit harder to see than gravel. Mm. Um, so I, I did understand the red flag uh, on that element. And also, you're right in that there's nothing in the regulations that doesn't say we must do this if this mm. happens. But it was suggested, I think, and accelerated after Monza last year when we didn't get a safety car restart after kind of six or seven laps at the end, that it would be ideal if that was to... if be ideal that we did get a restart. I think mm-hmm. the teams are quite in favour of that. Then it comes into whether, you know, per the rules, unless there's something that says, or there's, there's some reason why it shouldn't happen, such as if half the grid was wet and half the grid was mm-hmm. dry, there's nothing in the rules that says you shouldn't do a standing restart. Yes. So then it has to happen with two laps remaining and we're suddenly into kind of you know, formula desperate category because everyone's yes. looking at, at, oh my God, there's two laps left, we're all on soft tyres and I've got a massive opportunity to get some points because there's only you know 15 or 16 cars left and 10 are going to score and this is my chance. Yeah, and I think that for me has always been one of the issues with this idea that we have to absolutely restart the race because I also think... You get a bit of entertainment from a two-lap race if they all make it through cleanly. Not even close in this situation. <laughs> but it's still... It's a massive novelty, isn't it? In a non... And I don't mean that necessarily a positive way. It's just... You know, the whole race is sort of... And look, you can say this about any suspension that neutralises a Grand Prix, but it kind of lotterizes yeah. the result. For two laps. I, yeah. We're willing to cop five laps. Ten laps, I think, maybe was, would be fine. Ten laps is enough to... That's practically a sprint race. But for true laps, it just turns everything into a bit of a lottery. And sort of as you said, there was an there was an air of desperation for a lot of drivers. I mean, two drivers completely cut the corner. Several crashes that were most of the reason why we had to stay so late after the race, waiting for stewards' decisions. <laughs> I just don't think that actually reflects that well on the sport. No, it, it doesn't. Um, I agree with you on when you have a standing restart so late. I'd almost kind of like to think, well, if you get beyond half race distance, mm-hmm. you're kind of you're beyond the point of where you should be starting a race. If you've got to yeah. 50%, like when Albon crashed, yeah, you were like six or seven laps in. Mm-hmm. I can understand doing a second start. If you get to 50% of the way in, should you be doing another start? Because you're nearer the end than the start. Yeah. Anyway, that's probably another discussion. <laughs> but yeah, it gets to the point where you think, oh, this is the pinnacle of motorsport. And it looks comical. Yes. like it's You're almost at the point of laughing because you think, you know, it's one of those things that things happen at the same time. You know, Carlos tips Fernando into a spin, Mm -hmm. then suddenly you cut to the next camera angle and the Alpines are in the barrier and Lance Stroll was suddenly going through the gravel Mm -hmm. having inherited third place. Here, Lance, have third. No, gone. (laughs) Um, Suddenly, Nico Hülkenberg is in fourth place. um, Yuki Tsunoda's fifth and then the camera cuts to, oh, there's Nick DeVries in the gravel. How's that happened? Oh, Logan's there as well. And then you watch the replay and, oh, Logan just, you know, cannoned into Nick. Mm -hmm at turn one and you think I didn't even see that oh suddenly I've seen another replay and Checker went through the gravel as well yes. and you're like there's, just, there's so much going on and you just think like yeah yeah, it's the pinnacle of motorsport and <laughs> it, it looks a little bit silly 
Yes. As a final point on this, the penalties are what was interesting. Now, you mentioned there Carlos Sainz tipped Alonso into spin, almost immediately handed a five-second penalty for that, which because of the parade re- the parade final lap we got when this mess of a restart was red flagged <laughs> without enough laps left to actually restart the race, uh, which is its own sort of thing, dropped him to the back because the field was bunched up. Five seconds essentially killed his entire race, scored no points. It wasn't declared a first lap incident. That was Carlos Sainz's argument that this should have been essentially a first lap incident. It was a, a standing restart. What was declared a first lap incident was Gasly crunching Ocon against the wall. Not deliberately. I don't even think he was trying to defend Ocon, to be honest. But nonetheless, massive damage to both cars. Alpine must be really counting the cost on that one. And then Nick DeVries getting punted by uh, Logan Sargent into the gravel at the first lap. Both races ended on the spot. When points were up for grabs, not very many cars finished this race. Is this consistent penalising of drivers, considering one was slapped with a penalty extremely quickly and the others were considered first lap incidents? I, I really don't understand it. I really don't. like. Well, I say I really don't understand it. I understand a little bit more of the processes in mm-hmm. that science is one gets investigated initially because both cars are still in the race yeah, and therefore sure. a penalty can have a direct impact, whereas the Alpines are out, so you decide it later. Mm-hmm. To an extent, I get that. I don't understand why you get some incidents where you think, oh, yeah, we should speak to both drivers and get their opinion, whereas others you don't. Mm-hmm. There's, that's inconsistent. Kind of briefly saw Carlos after the race, you know, a f- f- couple of hours. He was still just, you know, desolately unhappy. Mm-hmm. Desolately a word? I don't know. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> um, he's effectively saying, you know, let me keep fourth, but give me a grip on TV. He just said, like, just give me, like, three places for Baku. Mm-hmm. Like, let me keep fourth. Yeah, but giving me the penalty for Baku, I don't mind. But this is like five seconds is so arbitrary because of the time gaps. Because mm-hmm. like you've got no chance to, yes. to to open up five seconds. It's not like mm-hmm. you get that on lap whatever, and you say right, you've got to gain five seconds. Mm-hmm. You've got twenty laps to do it or whatever. Um, yeah, then the Alpine one. I mean, I thought Sainz's one was clumsy. Gasly's one was also clumsy because he mm. got suckered into going wide. Then when he rejoined, then that's unsafe. So you think, well, one is clumsy, one's a bit more unsafe. One was between teammates. So did Alpine effectively say to Westerband, look, just say it was a racing yeah. incident. But the stewards document said, well, because it was a first lap, it was a yes. kind of mitigating. But then Carlos's one said it was a first lap, but he should have been more, I can't mm-hmm. remember the exact phrase, but he should have been more aware. So that's what I don't quite understand. Then you get Logan's yeah. one, which is... I wouldn't say it's worse than the other two, but it's pretty. It's silly. It's a, it's a silly. It's a rookie mistake. He's gone yeah. in too hot on you know tires that aren't quite there, and he's just driven another driver off the track. Now, you could argue they weren't going to score points, but it's still, if you're treating these incidents the same as you mm-hmm. should be, then I don't quite understand how Logan's not got a grip penalty and and penalty points because mm-hmm. Science got penalty points. Yeah, you know, Gasly didn't get anything science gets two penalty points logan doesn't get anything <sighs> that's what i don't understand these inconsistencies and also maybe you know okay alpha Tauri and williams both have one point this year mm. what if that's the only point they get and it comes to result count back you know that it, it's feasible that mm-hmm. it could come to results count back and what logan did has cost neek an 11th place mm-hmm that could be crucial at the end of the season for prize money. It's highly unlikely. You don't know, though. But you don't know. So it's like, that's what I'm thinking. For it to not even be investigated, mm-hmm. I was... Re- I mean, so much went on that you almost didn't notice until a yeah. little bit later when you think, hold on a minute, that, that one's not being looked at. Mm-hmm. So, 
Yeah, I didn't quite I didn't quite get that one. Yeah. And look, as a final note on this race as well, because the last investigation we had to keep an eye on, no, it was not the track invasion. That, I think, is outside the remit of this podcast. <laughs> it was Haas's protest or attempted protest against the fundamentally the result of the race, uh, and particularly a protest against the way the final restart grid, which was not restarted, in fact, it wasn't even a grid, it was behind the safety car, it was the final lap, the procession that took us to the checkered flag because there was not enough time, or not enough laps rather, to restart the race. It was Haas's opinion that it shouldn't have just been based on that previous grid that led to the chaos, it should have been based on where the cars essentially got to before the red flag happened uh safety car line two something you might be hearing that's essentially just where the pit lane joins the track and that is the first of around about a handful i think of official fia timing loops reliable timing loops is what they call them uh the stewards said uh, that the race director's decision not to use that was justified based on the fact that the race director didn't think it was a uh, reliable indicator of position i can kind of see both perspectives on this one. The rules deliberately give the race director the purview to do essentially yes. what they like here. And sometimes that is for the benefit of the sport, that decisions can be made without having to think about different clauses. Do you think Haas had a point with this one? Um, Noting, too, that Hulkenberg would have gained all of one position. I think they do. It's a very confusing one because, you know, I kind of didn't clock it at the time because so much had gone on that I then mm. saw Steiner looking quite angry after the race thinking, why is he looking angry? He's got seventh place. And then you think, well, it could have been six and mm-hmm. maybe had it worked out differently, you're maybe looking at fourth or third. Mm-hmm. Um it's you're right, the regulation says at the point of which it was last possible to mm-hmm. look at the race order. Now, I don't quite get why if the red flag goes out where the cars are at that point, surely to me, mm-hmm. that's the race order. We've got a timing tower, you can see the order, you can see where the cars are, then it comes you know, yes, there's regulations. So I suppose we have to stick to the regulations. At what point is the last possible uh, point possible? It can't be the mini sectors because they're not reliable. They're not used for timing. Mm-hmm. The GPS is a bit unreliable. So yeah, it then goes back to safety car line two. The problem with safety car line two in Melbourne is it's basically in the braking zone for turn one. Mm-hmm. Now, it's highly unlikely you'd ever decide a race like this, but say people in the future are thinking, well, if it's a red flag, we're going to decide it as safety car line two. What you'd end up getting is 20 drivers going off, all going <laughs> off because they're trying to go hell, you know, as fast as they can yeah. into turn one, miss the braking point, and go straight on. Because obviously they'd get mm. to safety car line two quicker than if they brake to try and get around turn one. So I can understand why Hass thought we could use safety car line two, but I can also understand why the race director mm. went, do you know what? It should be the start line. And it was such a chaotic situation that. It was probably the wisest thing to do. I can see why Haas are unhappy about it because mm-hmm. they've been royally screwed over by circumstance. You know, but if that's what the regulation says and it, it's open to for what the race director wants to do, mm-hmm. then yeah, I think amid the chaos, it, it probably was the right thing to do. If you can't just leave it as it is when the red comes out and where the cars are on track is the order. You have to go back to the start line. And worth noting as well, people will have drawn parallels to the British Grand Prix last year where safety car line two was talked a lot about. That's not in a braking zone, the pit exit line. That's why also just the nature of the incidents were very different, but that's part of the reason why it was considered reliable and not everyone crossed it compared to Melbourne, where everyone did cross it because it's very early in the lap, (laughs) but it's not so reliable. So it it does. it is a logical extension. It is consistent. As Fernando Alonso very eloquently explained as soon as he was spun around and the red flag came <laughs> yeah. out 
even before he'd gone back to the pit lane, mm-hmm. he was saying, oh, Silverstone last year, remember that? Yes. So again, we haven't really talked about Fernando, but let's just say, you know, not what's not El Plan, is it? It's, 30, <laughs> it's 33 question mark or whatever the last latest thing is, you know. Yeah, whatever the, the, the latest extraordinary thing is. mental capacity that that man has. So we got Max Verstappen winning ahead of an unusual, well, one position was an unusual on the podium. It was Lewis Hamilton and then Mac, and then Fernando Alonso, as you say, in his standard third place. A race that could have given us more had circumstances been different, but by that same token, gave us a hell of a lot more of different stuff that we weren't expecting in those final laps. Very strange Australian Grand Prix. Phil, thanks so much for joining me to talk about it. Thank you, Michael. While Mercedes looked closer to Red Bull Racing this weekend, don't be fooled into thinking the team's advantage has got any smaller. Even when in third, Max Verstappen always looked like the most likely winner. But it is a timely reminder to the chasing team sniping for victories that even the dominant frontrunner can be tripped up from time to time. Thanks very much to Phil Horton for joining me. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts, and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork, and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. The Azerbaijan Grand Prix is coming up at the end of the month. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll chat to you then. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.